Rockwell, thank you for being here. Happy to be here, Ayush. Good to see you. So can you take us through the history of money? Money in the context of crypto you're interested in. Because we could talk about, you know, money in many, many perspectives. But I think oftentimes when you're thinking about money in the context of why it matters in crypto, the first question people ask is, well, Bitcoin can't really be money, right? Because you can't go into Starbucks and pay with a coffee with Bitcoin. And, you know, the thing to point out is that, well, you can't walk into a coffee shop and pay a bag of gold or Apple stock either, right? But those are both forms of money. And so when you think about what money is, you know, the technical definition is money is a medium of exchange. Well, what is medium of exchange? Medium of exchange just means trade. So if you want something that I have and you want to buy it from me, how are you going to do it? You need to offer me something. And so money is the thing that you can offer me so that I give you the good or service that you want. Now, it's easy to get stuck in the now at the moment of, oh, well, like, uh, we have these green dollar bills, like we use those as money, that's what money is. Uh, but I assure you, I mean, somebody out there, if you're holding a bag of gold, somebody will trade you <laughs> a cup of coffee for a bag of gold, right? There's a market for that. And so when you think in, you know, historically, at, at every time, like what is considered money is whatever we agree on. Whatever two parties agree on is money is, is what money is. At one time, it was, you know, whale teeth and, and squirrels and barley, right? Uh, you know, if you really want to read a good book on money, there's one called The Ascent of Money by Nal Ferguson. He'll give you kind of a, a very good perspective of money. The explain like I'm five version of that, you know, the kind of condensed version is ages ago, we used to use things like whale teeth and barley as money. And then people woke up and were like, well, I don't really want whale teeth, so let's do something else. And so we started using precious metals like silver and gold. And, you know, yeah, like kings really loved that because they could put their faces on coins, right? And, and of course, like vanity. But, you know, it's like, oh, everybody, like they're walking around with these bags of silver and gold. They get back pain. It's like very laborsome. People can easily steal it from you. And so governments figure out like, okay, let's not trade in precious metals. Let's just use notes that represent the precious metals that are sitting somewhere in some vault or, you know, some, some, some secret storage facility. And then eventually uh, governments realize, well, wait a second. Actually, we don't need to back anything with the paper money other than our authority. And so, you know, we call this fiat money and then we can, we can just use this as like our, the full faith and trust of our authority that, you know, that th this will be accepted. That has kind of been the, the like the rough history, like the quick explain like I'm five condensed history of money. And when you think about how important it is, this power that you have to create or destroy money, it has generally been reserved for monarchs or governments or extremely powerful entities. There's an interesting question. What happens if you decouple the ability to create money from these institutions. What, what world opens up? And that's 
some of you know the interesting part of crypto is the separation of of money and state and all the things that like we saw what happens when you separate church from state right we, we've seen many we, we've seen in many other industries what happens when you remove the gatekeepers that we saw for example in the media industry when anybody can tell a story not just channel five news or the new york times or the time magazine what are the kinds of stories that get told? Uh, you know, when when all of a sudden anybody could upload a, uh, a video on YouTube, and uh, they could they could broadcast to the world, or they could send a tweet, or they could update uh, you know a post on Instagram or Facebook. We've all seen what happens when you remove the gatekeepers, when you decouple the the thing from the institutions. Oh yeah, fireworks! <laughs> That's what happens. Fireworks happens. That's what I think is really interesting is like, okay, well, now what happens when you decouple money from the mm -hmm. institution? And there's and like plenty of ways we could talk about where it goes. Sure. No, that's, that's a great um, starting point. You know, you've really cemented that foundation. So we have these, you know, artifacts in history and we try to find scarcity within those artifacts before maybe it was seashells. Then we got to precious metals. Gold was the most scarce precious metal. Gold was money for a very long time. Then we, we need to figure out durability and um, how to transport it better. And so they created these paper backed or gold backed paper notes. Um, and then they just took the gold out of the equation and backed the notes right <laughs> with their authority. And, and so one of the cool things about cryptocurrency, cool and complex things, is that you need to understand the history of money, but you also need a very thorough understanding of how cryptocurrency works technologically. And so mm. right now, we've come to a point where the blockchain is integral to that scarcity. So how what is a blockchain? Is it necessary for cryptocurrency? And why why is it necessary for this revolution in finance of restoring sovereignty i think you mm. first have to understand what a blockchain is because i think for a lot of folks it's a it's a term that gets flung around people don't understand it very well it's kind of mysterious in some ways it's just like this this blob but it's actually it's it's very easy to understand um so if you've ever um you know seen the ledger for a business like in the old school version of a ledger, it was a book. In the book, you would record transactions. So if somebody would come in, they'd be like, cool, like I wanna buy five of your chickens, right? So you would record, okay, I sold so-and-so five chickens for this amount of money, right? And, and you would just keep writing uh, transactions in your ledger. Now, this ledger is very centralized. It's like, you have the ledger, okay? So you could do whatever you want. You could write in there, completely fake transactions that never happen. And for some businesses that are trying to money launder or stuff that they do stuff like that, right? And so the the a kind of ultimate question is, is like, okay, well, how do you ensure that a ledger is not tampered with? How do you ensure that what's actually written in the ledger is true? You know, how do you ensure that the trades that you're saying actually happened? And so uh, one of the things that I think is hard for people to wrap their heads around because they're, they're so 
engrossed in this idea of like, hey, the current system works really well. You know, it's like, what are the problems? But you, if you just peek under the hood of how transactions happen in the economy today, you'll see all sorts of inefficiencies, credit card chargebacks, tons of fraud going around, people faking all, all sorts of, uh, of crazy transactions or, or committing all sorts of fraudulent activity. And so the underlying systems that we're using to power economic activity, to power kind of our economic ledger are not as sophisticated as you would, you would hope. And there, there's a lot of ways to tamper with them. And so it's like, okay, well, how do you create a, a better, more foolproof system? How do you create some kind of economic truth? How do you create a digital ledger that can't be easily manipulated? And that's where blockchains come in. So, uh, and the name is actually even illustrative of, of what we're talking about. So what a block actually is in this context is just a list of transactions. And when you create a list of transactions and you call it a block, when you create the next block, you point to the previous block and you're literally creating a chain of transactions together, which is a block chain. All a blockchain is, is just a digital list of transactions. That's it. What makes a blockchain interesting is that it, it has particular properties that are really attractive. And one of those properties is that it's very hard to tamper with it because of the way that it's actually structured and set up. And so in many blockchains, they have this, this superpower of being decentralized, which means there's no single point of failure. And so it's very, very hard to attack it and change the list of transactions. So if you really did come and buy five chickens for me, great. You know, it's like, that's recorded. That's there forever. Nobody can say you bought seven chickens or three chickens. Like, that's what it is. And you might think it's like, okay, but why is that such a big deal? And it's really hard to describe to somebody how powerful it is to actually own something until it's taken away from you. And so, you know, I'll give you some examples of this. Uh, in the 2008 great financial crisis, Greece was in so much trouble, they actually started uh, taking uh, money out of people's private accounts, private bank accounts. Right? And so you thought you owned your money in your bank account, but you didn't. They, the, the government could just unilaterally choose to say, it was like, actually, no, we're going to tax you on that money and take it. Or if you ever owned a, a property that got eminent domained by the government, where it's like, oh, you thought you owned this property. And the government said, oh, no, you don't actually own this property. We can take it from you. And maybe in some countries, we'll give you fair market value for it. But not always. So those will just take it from you. You only own something in as much as there isn't somebody more powerful than you that wants to take it away from you. And that's the thing that, that people have a really hard time wrapping their heads around because it hasn't happened to them yet. They have never personally experienced what it's like to believe you own something and then for it to be taken away from you. And one of the promises of the blockchain is this idea of self-custody that you can actually own the things that, that are yours. 
and that they cannot be forcibly taken away from you. And there are some really interesting contexts in which that's relevant and that matters a lot. And so ultimately, you know, these, these blockchains have some interesting superpowers about them, but what they actually are, are decentralized transaction ledgers that just record the transactions that are happening. And because they have really good tamper resistance, uh, you, can you can create these kind of production systems on top of them to say, hey, this is the economic truth. These are the transactions that are happening. This is who owns what. And ultimately, nobody can really matter. Yeah, I think, I think people are, are relatively unfamiliar with this idea of economic truth. I think that when we talk about specifically cryptocurrency and specifically Bitcoin, when we think about uh, being decentralized and this new term of being trustless, you know, it's like, what, what does that mean? Now I was talking with a friend and I was explaining blockchain and she was saying, well, if everybody has a blockchain, then doesn't everybody have my Bitcoin? And I was like, no, no, it doesn't, it doesn't work like that. Right. Because there are so many, there are so many moving parts. And I guess just going on a tangent, how do we decouple the complexity of cryptocurrency and of understanding cryptocurrency with using cryptocurrency on a day-to-day -day basis. It feels like you have to understand how the blockchain works. You have to understand how proof of work and proof of stake works. You have to understand what a public and a private key is, how that relates to your wallet. <laughs> you know, you have to understand um, like settlement. It's only, it, it, it's only because you're early, right? Okay. And Interesting. so, you know, you know, in the early ages of the internet, you had to kind of know a lot of things like, all right, I'm going to use a dial-up modem to dial into this like bulletin board. I'd have to know how to use these things. Like I'd probably have to be more on the technical side. You know, today, if you want to send an email, you have no idea how email works. Mm -hmm. Like most people have no concept of how email works. If you want to sign up for Instagram, most people have no concept of how Instagram's techno technological infrastructure works. Right now, in the phase we are in crypto, is because we're so early. Um, you know, it's it's easy to get lost in all of these details before they get abstracted out. There will come a day when nobody ever talks about proof of work or proof of stake uh, or consensus algorithms or any of this stuff. It's like they won't even think about it. They'll just use their applications and be happy with it. Mm -hmm. I mean. I'm waiting for that world. I'm sure a lot of other people are because no, seriously, because when yeah. you explain these concepts about cryptocurrency to people and they get it, it's kind of like, you know, there's a hard fork in their understanding in a literal way because they don't look back on current monetary systems with any sort of passion or, or want, you know, as soon as you explain Bitcoin's properties, just as a, an example, cryptocurrency, or crypto property, if you're Michael Saylor, then, you know, you, you immediately just want to go into that world where the Bitcoin standard is real. And so I guess right now we're, we're pivoting slightly to Web3, if we could say that. So before we get into what a Web3 world could look like, how should we differentiate between Web2 and Web3? I guess before that, what is Web 2 and what is Web 3? 
there's a lot of ways to think about this. I think one thing you first have to understand is what crypto actually is. And people really, they truly misunderstand what, what crypto is. Crypto at its core is programmable incentives. And what that actually means when you unpack it is that you want some outcome to exist in the world. You now have an infrastructure to try to program that outcome to exist full stop. So for example, um, if you want there to be a uh, decentralized store of value, you can say, okay, if you help secure this network, that's this decentralized uh, store of value, I will reward you by paying you in Bitcoin. And that Bitcoin will have value if the underlying activity has value. So like people really care for there being a decentralized store of value, then the Bitcoin will have value. If for example, instead you want there to be decentralized forever storage, where you could like store a file decentralized forever. You could say, okay, if you come and run a node in this network and store files, we're gonna reward you in our weave. Great. Uh, it, you know, if you want there to be a Google Maps competitor, where it's like, all right, if you put your dash cam or like your phone on your, on your, on your dash and like record your environment around you, we're gonna pay you some hive mapper token for every mile that you map. Fantastic. Now, why does this matter? Well, it matters because in the old world, if you wanted to create a Google Maps competitor, you would need tons of money, right? Like you would need an incredible amount of money to pay all the drivers to go around to map the world, to accumulate all of this data. But here we're saying, no, you don't need all of that money. You just need to program an infrastructure that gives people a token for the activity that they're doing. And if that activity, that underlying activity has value, then that token will have value. It's a completely different, it's a fundamentally different way to operate and do business. And it's really powerful because it means that the startup costs can be so much lower to try to program the, the, the outcomes that you're looking to achieve in the world. And those outcomes could be incredibly varied. You know, I gave you three examples of many, many more examples of basically saying, hey, I'm gonna incentivize your behavior through giving you a token for performing an activity. And that, again, that token will have value if that underlying activity is meaningful in the world and like the market values it. So out of that comes the saying that in web two, money buys distribution. Like you go raise a bunch of money from venture capitalists or investors, you amass your, your war chest, and then this will help buy distribution for whatever product or service that you're pitching. In Web3, or in crypto generally, money is distribution. Money is distribution. Because you have the ability to create money, you can actually use it as the distribution mechanism. You can say, hey, cool, I'm creating this money if you do this thing. And that is the distribution. People get excited about it. They're like, oh yeah, like this activity is gonna be worthwhile. I'll go do the activity. You saw it with Bitcoin, right? If you go if you go and run a node on the network and you help secure the network, you put, you put up the computation, you'll get some Bitcoin. 
And for the people that saw the potential, or even the people that were interested in speculating, they went and did that. And they were rewarded. And ultimately, the market spoke and was like, yes, actually, it's really powerful to have a decentralized store value. So, you know, if you understand that that crypto is programmable incentives, it's not just money, right? It's, it's, and this is the thing that people get so caught up on. It's not that crypto is trying to replace the US dollar. Like that's not the framework you should have in your mind. Crypto is, 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 a, is, a, is a way to manifest outcomes in the world that is fundamentally different and in many ways more powerful than the infrastructure that came before it. And it doesn't necessarily need to replace everything, but it is, it is in the same way that the internet augmented the world in very meaningful, interesting ways. It didn't replace everything. Like I can still go outside, I can still go to retail stores, I can still go to malls, I can still do many things that existed before the internet. With crypto, it's much the same way. A lot of this stuff that, that came before crypto is still going to exist and be meaningful. But crypto gives us these new avenues to build products, experiences that are, are meaningful, important, impactful, and are, and are accessible in ways that don't require mountains of venture capital or mountains of, of investors' money to go build the next interesting thing. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. It's just a lot to process because it's it's a it's a <laughs> massive reorientation. Because whenever people talk about cryptocurrency, it's always let's do away with all fiat and let's just move to a Bitcoin standard or to an Ethereum standard or to a Cardano standard or whatever. Right. And thinking about you know um, cryptocurrencies collapsing the distance between wanting an outcome in the world and actually generating that outcome in the world is is a delicious thought but it's a big on-ramp for at least me to 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 deal with um but it's an important on-ramp i think for gen z and gen alpha who are coming into a world where they want to change it very quickly and i think they're coming into a very complex you know society and culture where you know they don't have a lot of time and you know, their understandings are very different. And so they need to generate those different outcomes in a very quick and aggressive way. So just, I guess, on that topic, mm. if you're in school right now, you're in high school or post-secondary, how should you think about cryptocurrency and how should you take advantage of this current situation? Hmm. My recommendation is always to have a bias towards action. So if you care about uh, this industry, its ideals, what it's trying to do, get involved. Go on discords, go on telegrams, uh, you know, go read DAO forums, start getting, just take a bias towards action, like get moving, get acting. It doesn't have to be perfect. You know, you're gonna make some mistakes. You're gonna do things that are learning experiences. All that's fine, but you've got to go take action because if you just sit there and let it pass you by, that's what it does. It just passes you by. You never get involved. Nothing meaningful happens. And it's through the bias of taking action that the random encounters happen. That, and there's so many, there's so many random things that happen that end up being very consequential for you in, in, in your life. 
And the kind of the more that you can increase the random walk encounters that you have and increase your surface area for luck based on that, the better chance you have of something interesting like coming out of it. And so my best advice is just have a bias towards action, like take action, feel comfortable taking action, build the muscle and the habit of taking action because that that's going to be more impactful than almost anything. Do you need a post-secondary degree to get into crypto? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. No. That's a good answer. No. That's a good answer. Um, no, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that was the reaction just because, you know, I feel like a lot of Gen Z and Gen Alpha are neglecting post-secondary and they just want to do their own thing. So at least if there is a healthy way for them to make an impact, you know, crypto could be that. Um, how did you get into this, by the way? What's your background? Ah, that's an interesting question. So uh, a lifetime ago, I ran a medical software company called For Patient Care, grew that, scaled it. Uh, it was acquired by Essilor. Um, after that, I spent the last eight years of my life in the consumer wellness industry, making successful apps on the App Store and Google Play to help people sleep, beat their anxiety, depression, chronic pain, a lot of mental wellness topics. Um, more recently, I have become the CEO of a company called Oslo that makes uh, these really cool sleep buds. So they're wireless earbuds for sleep. So, you know, a lot of my career has been outside of, uh, outside of crypto, but a good portion of it has also been inside of crypto. And so, you know, I've kind of bought you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum for a while. Uh, the, in 2021, I was like early 2021, a buddy reached out to me and he's like, hey, you like, you really got to get involved with, uh, you know, the DeFi, uh, uh, DeFi summer that's happening, uh, you know, so like there was this, there was this big DeFi summer in, in like summer of 2020, it spilled over into 2021, it spilled over into this like massive bull run that happened, basically all asset classes in 2021, but especially in crypto. And so I started getting involved uh, uh, more thoroughly with some DeFi projects. Uh, eventually I started a blockchain gaming guild we scaled that from zero to over 2,400 players in six months. It was crazy. It was a really wild time. Uh, we also, at that time, uh, launched a DeFi protocol that raised about $2 million in 72 hours. That was a, um, you could think about it as a reserve currency for gaming assets. So the idea being like, you could issue money, like digital money against gaming assets that this uh, this entity held. And it was a very interesting concept idea. Unfortunately, the 2022 happened, the whole market tanked. It's like gaming assets went down 99%. So a lot of it lost value. But uh, we also, during 2021, started uh, a Web3 school called Invisible College, where people could actually learn and onboard into Web3. So we launched an NFT collection out of that. Uh, the NFTs gave you access to all the courses, the curriculum, the content. Um, you know, so we sold a bunch of uh, of NFTs. The school is still operational at that invisiblecollege.xyz. 
you know, it's kind of like decentralized at this point. People can just like go get the NFT, access the courses, do the whole thing. Um, so that that was a lot of my involvement in the crypto world. Uh, and it's just like all of that was was an interesting breeding ground for the project that I'm working on at the moment. It's kind of kind of like my side passion project called BitNote. And you can find it at bitnote.xyz. But ultimately, it's this uh, this problem that I'm obsessed with, which is where do you store secret information? So, you know, like the kind of traditional advice in crypto is, oh, like etch your secrets into steel, put it in a fireproof safe in a secret place in your house, bolt it to the ground where only you know the code. It's like, yeah, man, that's great if you're Batman, but like if you're just a normal person, yeah. that's not very good advice. And so, you know, people turn to these centralized password managers like LastPass or One Password, and the truth of that is like, okay, well, those systems, like those companies, could go out of business, right? They have pricey subscriptions, not great. They're not open source, so you actually never know what's happening with your data, which leads to, you know, for example, LastPass has gotten hacked half a dozen times in the last four years. So it's really, uh, you know, when you're talking about storing your secrets safely, putting them in a place where you actually don't know how the data is, is, is held and stored and secured is not great. And so, you know, a lot of people use uh, uh, open source password managers like Bitwarden, but they don't realize that like Bitwarden is opinionated about what VPN you use. So if you use the wrong VPN, they won't let you access your data. Or, and this is a big one, um, people don't realize that if your email gets hacked, somebody could delete your whole Bitwarden vault, even if they don't have your master password for your Bitwarden account. And so like all your secrets could just like poof, be gone all of a sudden, right? So then the question is like, okay, like where do you actually store secret information? Like if you wanna self custody secrets, you, know, you can't put them in your Apple or Google accounts. Like your Google account could get banned. Like there's all these horror stories and people are like, they wrote the wrong comment on YouTube. All of a sudden they can't access their Gmail or their Google Drive, right? There's even a story the other day of a woman who got locked out of her Apple account because a hacker tried to enter her account so many times, failed, and it just completely locked everybody out of the account. And so if you're talking about mission critical secrets that you have to have access to, whether that's in a personal setting or in a corporate setting, where do you put this data? And, you know, it's like, oh, maybe you're sophisticated enough to run your own home server or something. Uh, but it's like, okay, do you want the maintenance of that? You still have to secure that. You know, there's all sorts of headaches that come along with that. It's like, it's just this weird ultimate problem that it's like, there's not a really good place where if you need the guarantees that, you know, it's decentralized, it's permissionless, it's censorship resistant, it's private, it's permanent storage, it's easily accessible. Like there's no system of storing secrets that can guarantee you those things that exist today. And especially if you are, like let's say you, you are in uh, crypto and you have significant assets and you have a crypto seed phrase or a crypto private key, where do you store that? Because whoever has access to that seed phrase or private key has access to all the funds. And there was not a really good answer to this question, right? So th there's basically no good answer to this question. And so we're like, all right, well, 
we'll just build it, right? Like it, it doesn't exist. Like, let's go build it. We need it ourselves. At the worst, at least we'll have a customer of one. <laughs> like, right. well, we at least know there'll be one user for the product. Yeah, I mean, just hearing you talk about this, it seems like cryptocurrency doesn't really matter so much as the concepts that it instills in people. I feel like before cryptocurrency, people didn't really think about decentralization or trustlessness. And now they do. And now they want to apply it to everything. Yeah. So that's that's the first thing. The second thing is that, again, going back to what you were saying of crypto doesn't necessarily need to displace the dollar, as, as an example. And it feels like a lot of the things that crypto is... is um, like a lot of the babies that crypto is having in all of these other spaces can coexist with these legacy applications. So why are people so afraid of this revolution, revelation in cryptocurrency? Um, We'll say cryptocurrency and its ideals. Why are people so worried that we'll just stop transacting in fiat, which is a possibility. I think that we're going to have like dual economies where one is in fiat, the other is Web3, I know you don't like that term, so we'll just say crypto. But why why is everybody over the age of 45 to 50 just like crypto is a scam, it's useless, <laughs> and it's never going to be anything? I mean, this happens with every technological revolution. Uh, Does it the go? same thing was said. Yeah, the internet. I mean, if you, were, if you were old enough to see the rise of the internet, you would have heard the same curmudgeons talking about the internet saying it was a scam it was stupid it was a fad there's literally newspaper headlines that you can pull up that say basically as much and it was only reinforced in the 99 or the 2000.com bubble burst so in 2000 you know there was all these high flying internet companies they raised tons of money at crazy valuations they didn't have real business models and they all blew up or a lot of them blew up. And so you saw this huge stock market crash. Everybody was like, lots of people lost tremendous amounts of money and everybody thought the internet was over. And they were like, what a scam it was. You know, and there's plenty of, plenty of even websites. Quite funny because uh, there were internet websites that would catalog, that, that would catalog all of the stories of all these companies going out of business and how horrible it was and how terrible they were. And they're just awful people doing awful things. And it's very funny because the same thing happens, happens in crypto where there are websites where people are talking about it's like, Oh, how terrible crypto is or how terrible, you know, these, these projects are and uh, you know, how much of a scam they are. And it's like it, history repeats itself constantly, you know, with every new technological wave, the old guard gets very upset about it. They're like, this is a scam. This is stupid. It just, I mean, it has happened for ages and ages. It will continue to happen after crypto. This is nothing unique. Now, to be clear, it's not like everything that's come out of crypto is some like uh, rainbows and sunshine and unicorn. Like, like every other technological um, leap, there's plenty of things that are not okay with crypto. Like, just like there's things not okay with uh, previous technological uh, leaps. Like I still get phone calls where people are trying to scam me with some like expired car warranty that I've never bought before. I still get emails 
from like Nigerian princes who are trying to tell me like they need $5,000 to unlock 40 million. You know, those are scams. scams every, yeah. <laughs> I always send them the scams. money. I, uh, <laughs> sorry, sorry, did you on. ever get the 40 million? Did you ever get the um, 40 I'm, million? I'm waiting on it, but sorry, please go ahead. <laughs> so look, it's technology can be used for good. It can be used for bad. You can take a knife, you can cook with it, or you can stab the person next to you, right? It's like, it's your choice, what you do with the tool. And crypto is a really powerful infrastructure that can do things that are amazing and can do things that are horrible. And it's like ultimately our choice, how we use the tool. Yeah. I mean, we're closing out that section on crypto. That's, it's really important for people to hear, because again, I think we're coming off of this FTX collapse, the Terra Luna collapse, people have lost so much money. And, you know, even for the, the young folks that I talked to that weren't invested before, but we're kind of like looking in, you know, from the outside, looking in, trying to see whether they should put their money into Bitcoin and Ethereum, that entire like summer fiasco just totally turned them off to any idea of crypto. So just hearing you say that, I mean, it's, it's good to have that, that optimism because a lot of people, once they see all of these events and see people like Sam Bankman fried and all, the, the entire ruckus around him, just the circus that happened. They don't want to do their due diligence and invest time, energy, and a little bit of money into understanding that crypto is not just like this small thing about money, that it represents all of these other things. But stepping away from crypto, what first principles do you yeah, use? That, uh, before yeah. we before completely step away, yeah. it is it is unfair to think that Elizabeth Holmes of Theranos represents the startup world mm. or Adam Newman of WeWork represents the startup world or Bernie Madoff uh, represents the finance world mm. or Enron represents the corporate. All of these were big fiascos. There were horrible situations. A lot of people lost a bunch of money, but just because there are bad people doing bad things with infrastructure doesn't mean that industry is bad. And, and so in the case of someone like Sam Bankman-Fried or the, the, the folks over at, at Luna and uh, everything that happened there, um, it's, it's very funny that the further away that you got from the principles of crypto, like the ideas of decentralization, permissionlessness, censorship resistance, like FTX embodied none of these things. Sam Bankman-Fried embodied none of these things. You know, Sam Bankman-Fried embodied, hey, like, uh, you know, ex-Jane Street trader uh, decides to come to crypto and make a scam honeypot to drain people of money. And that is the antithesis of everything that actual crypto philosophy stands on. And so it is, you know, the, the comedy of it all that it's like, the people that are really interested in crypto that preach the the basic core tenets and these philosophies, like they get proven right over and over and over again. It's like, if you don't control your assets, you, you don't control your assets, not your keys, not your coin, mm -hmm. right? If you trust centralized entities, they're going to keep disappointing you over and over again. 
if you allow people to to uh, uh, if you allow people to control whether or not you have access, they will abuse that privilege. Right? If you allow people to censor you, they will abuse that privilege. It's just like over and over again, we keep learning these same lessons, and that's uh, I just have to call it out because these the the these people that do really bad things they're so outside of actual what crypto actually stands for and so they're taking they're like wall street people that are taking the crypto rails and like building really bad things and then crypto gets blamed for it mm -hmm. and it's like well if you just actually believed in its core tenants you would not subscribe to a celsius or a voyager or an ftx or a Terra Luna or any of this stuff because it's like it's literally and the antithesis of everything that was being built in crypto. So then, is the on ramp to a crypto world understanding the fundamentals and not 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 no? No, I think the on ramp to a crypto world is um, it's like this stuff gets flushed out. Like the bullshit gets flushed out over time. And so there's only so long that you can last when when the infrastructure you're building is on a house of cards. Mm -hmm. And so there's only so so long you can last running a Ponzi scheme. Like Bernie Madoff was eventually going to be figured out. In his case, it took a lot longer than I think people expected. But, you know, it's like if you're creating an, a scam, there's generally speaking only so long before you'll be found out and flushed out. And so as time progresses, naturally, the ecosystem becomes more robust. The applications become more robust. The stuff that is nonsense, like falls off, uh, falls off by the wayside. And the stuff that is, is actually real stands out. It's like Bitcoin is very real. Bitcoin is not a scam. It keeps lasting. It keeps lasting out all of these other systems, all of these other blockchains, all these other things that are, that are being built. And so the proof is in the pudding over time of what is real and what is not real. Now, the, I think the interesting question is, if you want to meaningfully participate in the ecosystem today with where it is in the stage of infrastructure that it is, do you need to understand what you're doing? Yes, you need to understand what you're doing. And if you don't understand what you're doing and you want to participate, then just go buy Bitcoin and just sit on it and wait. <laughs> like that. that's the... Yeah, that, that's the best recommendation you can give someone who doesn't actually want to do anything other than, hey, I just want to buy something and just hold on to it. Well, I think that's most people that, you know, I don't really, as we were talking about, I don't want to understand how email or Instagram works. I just want to use it. You know, it's, yeah. it's not in, it's not in my, it shouldn't be my toolkit to understand how the Instagram algorithm works unless I'm a content creator in order to best make use of my sure. time on the platform. And so I guess there's two things. Number one is, is it only Bitcoin that I should buy? I'll leave that question aside. But number two is, how should I best understand those things to best make use of my time in the crypto industry? Because if I'm a Gen Z or a Gen Alpha and I'm just, I listen to this podcast and yep, I want to get into crypto. I want to understand all of these things. Where do I go? What do I do? There's so much noise. How do I know I'm not going to run into a Nigerian prince that's going to, ask me for 5,000 and send me back 40 million in Bitcoin. It's like, sure. Like, how do I do research on how to do research? Mm -hmm. 
That's an interesting question. I think there's many ways to think about it. I think one of the ways that has been really helpful to me is to identify the sources of information and the people that I, I think are high quality sources of information and are high quality people. And you know, like Vitalik Buterin, who is uh, one of the co-founders of Ethereum, very high quality source of information. You can go read his blog totally for free and understand his insights and his perspective, right? Uh, there are many um, YouTube channels and news websites that are, are putting out pretty high quality information like Masari, super high quality information is coming out of Masari at any, any given point of time. They have an incredible reputation. Uh, there are many kind of like Telegram channels and, and discords like for Telegram, the Lobster DAO is it's like anybody can go join the Lobster DAO Telegram. It, you know, there's, there's incredibly interesting people having incredibly interesting discussions there all the time. You can kind of see, uh, start absorbing information there. Um, even with Invisible College, like we have a number of courses at Invisible College that people can take that helps to introduce them and get them in, into that world. Um, there's many ways you can go about it. I think a big question for yourself is like, how good is your bullshit filter? Mm. And if your bullshit filter is not good, you know, crypto is not going to be healthy for you because, because there's, there's a lot of folks that are peddling a lot of nonsense. But honestly, that's true of most of life. If your bullshit filter isn't good, people are going to wreck you in normal life as well, not just in crypto. And so, you know, it's like you have to train to improve your bullshit filter and be able to ascertain, like, am I getting good information or is this completely wildly off base? Yeah. No, I hear you. And I totally agree with you. It's just, you know, uh, in my book, I, I put a, a little thing that said, you know, the average Gen Z doesn't want to spend even 15 minutes to check if what they've consumed on social media is real or true or not, which is just absurd. Yeah. And thinking about something like money, you know, such a complex thing, you know, it's hopefully getting easier and easier to understand. But it's like, are we really expecting the average Gen Z to do that much critical thinking about every decision in the crypto industry? Or should they just go and buy Bitcoin? I guess the answer is just to go and buy Bitcoin if we're, if we're being realistic. Yeah, that's so. so yeah, I mean, the, the realistic answer is like, if you want crypto exposure, you know, and I, I, I really can't, you know, it's like obviously not financial advice, yep. but the, uh, don't go like take, you know, 80% of your net worth and put it into Bitcoin or do something stupid like that. Uh, you know, be responsible. Think about, um, you know, a percentage that is, if it just went to zero, would not devastate you. And for most people, that number is under 5% of their net worth. And so it's like, you know, and if you are more aggressive, maybe that number is a little bit higher but it's not 20% or 50% or 80%. And even if you, you did put 50% of your net worth and made this big bet and you were right, it's still a bad move. Mm -hmm. It's like, you got lucky, 
not because you were thoughtful about how you're handling your portfolio and how you're ha handling, uh, you know, it's like we've seen huge swings in Bitcoin where Bitcoin has gone from 69,000 all the way down to 18,000 or 20,000 all the way down to 3,000. Can you handle that? Can you handle those swings? You know, in my belief system, yes, Bitcoin is going, generally speaking, up and to the right over long periods of time. But are you able to wait? Are you able to basically play the, the time arbitrage long enough? And if, if you get to a percentage where the answer is no, then that is too much. You're putting too much money in. That doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. You know, these assets are very volatile. So don't expect, like, you have to have the expectation that you're going to buy this thing and you're going to hold it for a long period of time if you want to make any money. Honestly, I think that's the best place to end it. Giving people, you know, <laughs> advice, not financial advice. Um, you yeah. know, time in the market beats timing the market. I think we can both agree Correct. on that. And when we say buy Bitcoin, we don't mean go on YouTube and send your your one Bitcoin to get two back. It's the same scam for the Nigerian prince. <laughs> Please don't do that. But Rockwell, this has been okay. a fantastic conversation. Where can we find you on social media or online? Uh, you can find me on, on Twitter, X, uh, at Rockwell Shaw. My, at Rockwell Shaw, basically on everything, LinkedIn, Instagram. I don't use a lot of social media, so you won't see me post a, a ton, but occasionally stuff will pop up. I'll do an interview or something, but you know, I, it's always fun to talk to folks that are interested in going deeper than the surface layer that are interested in going deeper than it's like the 60 second TikTok or something. And those are the conversations and, and the context that I enjoy the most. Well, it shows, you know, your passion and your rigor for these ideas and communicating them in accessible ways. So once again, thank you so much.